Almighty God, you alone are glorious. You alone are worthy of all glory. So come now and get the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before coming to ATS, Asbury Theological Seminary, I have been a missionary, a pastor. And so I come to you out of that frame of reference today. Uh, in the last church where I was pastor in charge, I, I had the opportunity to lead uh, the church through a process of looking at a vision statement getting the leaders together in a room and having a brainstorm session. Where do we want to go? Who do we want to become? What's our future? And through a long process, we came up with a vision statement. And I submit to you that that process is really helpful for churches because when we know where we're headed, it helps us work backwards to how we want to live. And I submit to you that this text in Revelation is for us a kind of vision statement, a kind of vision statement of our future, of where we're headed. Isn't it great that God gave us a picture of the end? Isn't that great? No matter how you slice your eschatology, I'm not here to debate your eschatology, whether you're pre-mill or, or trib, pre-trib or post-trib or ah-mill. I'm not really going to go into that. But where, where I am going to land is that we know who gets the victory. Is there an amen? amen? We know that Jesus overcomes and is victorious, and therefore we get to overcome. And I want us to kind of look into this scripture a little bit more and look at this, this, this vision, this picture that's painted for us. Uh, because there's some very specific things we need to consider. One of the things that, um, that we need to consider is that the lamb is at the center. Did you catch that? The lamb. Don't you like how the Old Testament and the New Testament ingeniously weave together? I mean, we read in the Old Testament about how the priests would, uh, would help purify the people by a sacrifice, by the sprinkling of blood. And then here we have the New Testament and John the Baptist, the prophet, says of Jesus, the Messiah, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here in Revelation, the lion and the lamb. Here we have the lamb that was slain, Jesus at the center. And then the scripture takes time to say, how did those who are around the throne get there? Did you notice that? The question was raised, where did they come from? And he's told, they, they've come out of the great ordeal, a time of tribulation, oppression. And they're there because they've done, done laundry. They're there because by faith they've done laundry and they've traded out their filthy clothes and washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. Anybody here today? They've washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they are purified, the spotless bride of Christ. They are purified and beautiful and able to be in the presence of Christ 
because of his righteousness, not their own. It makes me think of a song. It makes me want to sing that song. Do you know this? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Do you know that song? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's blood, through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Sounds like Revelation 7, doesn't it? How will I stand before the throne in his righteousness? And so the people around the throne have actively, by faith, put on robes. His robes, his righteousness. Did you catch that? And then the scripture takes time to describe to us the crowd. We're told that there's a multitude. There's a picture here painted of a great multitude. Did you see that in 7-9? It talks about there's a multitude so great that no one can count. God has a big vision. Not just a little bitty vision. A big vision. And who is there? People from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So let's just have fun with this a minute. What does it not say? It doesn't say around the throne is the English speakers. It doesn't say around the throne is the Americans. It doesn't say around the throne is a superior race in people. It says around the throne are a people from all the nations. Different colors, different languages, different cultural backgrounds. God has a big vision. Isn't that the gospel? For God so loved. It says it right here, Dr. Tennant. Remember the world. Right here on this Asbury pulpit. Remember the world. So I think we need to ask ourselves the question, if that's where we're headed, we get to have a giant worship party, y'all, around the throne by the righteousness of Christ that we shed abroad in our hearts and we live into, and we get to be with people that we've never even met before this side of glory. What a party that's going to be. How then shall we live today? I'd invite you to that brainstorming session. Wouldn't it be fun, Reverend Covington, just to bring everybody to a room with a big whiteboard and we could brainstorm what then should be our priorities and our goals as a people, as individuals? I'm so glad that Asbury Theological Seminary lives into that heavenly vision and says, we want to serve the global church. Lord, help us to serve the global church. So I want to invite you to that homework assignment. 
How then shall we live? How then shall you live? And if I may, I'd like to offer a few pastoral comments here. I, I, I'm one of the people on this kind of pastoral team that loves this community and labors in your midst and wants good for this community. And so if you, if you allow me, I'd like to suggest a few practical applications. One of them has already been hinted to by Dr. Seaman's preaching and Dr. Witherington's preaching, that we got to get rid of the isms. There's a lot of isms, right? Tribalism, nationalism, racism, ethnocentrism. How about regionalism? I mean, I'll just go on that one because that's the lighter of all those heavy isms. Regionalism. I'm from the Midwest. Anybody from the Midwest? Right. I married a man from Georgia, the South. Anybody from the South? All right. I mean, we can joke about this, right? But there's some pride in our region in this country. And by the way, I've noticed that in other countries too. It's not just unique to the to the United States, but we can have some pride. So like, for example, when my husband and I, when we were dating and getting ready for a wedding, we had more than one discussion about the right way to do a wedding. Like lots of discussions up in there. And that's just a little bitty thing, let alone all the other isms in that list. What does it mean to to die to the isms, the prides that we hold deeply within our background and culture and ethnicity. Now, I don't want to point the finger too much, so I'm going to start by pointing the finger at myself. And I'm going to tell a little bit of my story to also invite you to look at your story. Uh, my family, on my father's side, were Dutch. I brought my klompen. Where I grew up in northwest Iowa, lots of Dutch immigrants from the Netherlands settled in that part of northwest Iowa. There was a, a high school band not far from where I lived. They marched in these things. Like, we were proud to be Dutch. I was given a t-shirt as a kid, no kidding, that says, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> and we joked about that, but there's an ism in there, isn't there? Proud ancestry, Dutch. When I was first married, I married this wonderful man named Kirk who loves to do ancestral research. So he started researching me and my people. And between talking to uh, elders of the family and doing research online, he planned a whole vacation for us to go to the Netherlands. And it was an amazing thing. Uh, I could talk and talk about it, but I'll just say it was, it was something to go and meet relatives that looked like me and go to the land where my people had been and go to the church and worship where a great-grandfather of mine had been the preacher. Like, that was an amazing feeling to kind of come back home. We Dutch, lots to be proud of. But I also, as a missionary, moved to Ghana. 
And that's another part of my story. When we lived in Ghana, we began visiting the coastline castles in Ghana. Lots of European nations built European-style castles on the coastline of Ghana so as to protect their trading interests. And so we began to visit these castles. And the one that really grabbed my attention was the Elmina Castle. The Elmina Castle was an impressive fortress. And yet, as I began to be toured, I began to be sobered about my ancestors. Because immediately they took us to the first floor, the dungeon floor, and showed us a door at the edge, at the back of the castle, a small little door that you'd have to kneel down to get through. That was the door of no return, where Dutchmen would sell beautiful African bodies and ship them off to the Americas. And my ancestors did that. They took us around to these dungeon rooms. They were about, there were several of them, and they were all about the size of my living room. You know, enough space to put a couple couches and a couple comfy chairs and a TV. You know, not very big. And in each room that we would go in, over and over, they would say hundreds were put in this room so tightly that there was nowhere to sit, no place to use the toilet. The rooms to this day, they smell of mildew and suffering. And if those walls could speak, I no longer have a need to watch a scary movie. I've seen it. I could feel it. Years later, the kind of oppression in that space, in those dank mildew dungeons. Then the tour guide took me upstairs, gave me a different picture of the castle, took us to the ocean side to see the great view of the coastline, the nice gentle breeze of West Africa. They took us to the bedroom chamber, the living room quarters of the governor, the, the person in power who ran the castle. Very nice. Nice windows, cross breeze. And then they took us out to a balcony, a balcony that looked over the castle. And this was so the governor could look down from the balcony and have some of the women slaves walk in the courtyard so he could have his pick. Imagine what a woman would face if she resisted. But the part that I still cannot grasp was the next part of the tour. They took us to a church building. In the castle, in the slave-holding castle, there was a church where people who claimed to believe in the same God that I believe in were ready to pray and ask God to bless them. Right while there, right while there were slaves imprisoned, treated worse than cattle of today, were crying out, and there they were in that worship space in the slave castle. I went out from there humbled. <laughs> My ancestry. I went out from there repenting. I went out from there realizing I needed to do my laundry. Now you might say to me, it might be said to me, 
hey, that was a long time ago, don't feel so bad. To that I would say a few things. One, there's no doubt that the country of the Netherlands economically benefited from the transatlantic. There's no uh, coincidence, there's a correlation with the privilege and the advantages e economically that me and my generation have because of that history. And what about the corporate nature of sin? You know, here in the North, North America and in Western cultures, we're very individualistic. We want to think our sin is private and personal and nobody's business. And yet in the scriptures, I submit to you, the Bible would challenge that. The Bible talks a lot about corporate sin. Check out 2 Samuel 21 and the blood guilt of Saul and what King David years later had to do to amend for the blood guilt of another king. Even within our theology here at Asbury, within the communion liturgy, we pray we when we confess our sins, right? We confess we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. There is a theology of corporate sin, of my actions impacting yours, your life. And then isn't it easy? Isn't it easy for us to look way back of another generation and look at the people, those people, who how could they disconnect uh, oppressing slaves, beautiful black bodies made in the image of God, you know, in Genesis? How could they, like, overlook that and then still be, like, worshiping God? And I can judge that. I can see the speck in their eyes. And then I wonder, in a hundred years... What will the ancestors who come after me say of summer of 2020? And what we have done. And so I don't think I'm off the hook. I think that the call we would read in Genesis, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I think God would hold us to that same question. So for a minute, I want to just quickly exhort the majority culture. Censuses tell us that up until about 2043, Caucasian Americans make up the, the white majority culture of the United States. So for a minute, I just want to say a few words to those of you who fit that demographic. I want to call us to a posture of humility. I want to call us to consider in the week since Breonna Taylor and the decision was announced, have we actively tried to listen and ask questions of somebody who looks different from us? To perhaps ask how they feel and what they're going through? Do we hear the exhortation of the scriptures, bear one another's burdens? I want to hold up to you this wonderful concept called empathy. I brought my empathy hat. You can pretend you're putting on your hat. This is my hat, my empathy hat. And so with empathy, can we think about what it might feel like 
what it might feel like to get up this morning and put on our running shoes and go outside and take a jog or a walk and then to look down at the color of our skin and realize we're in a neighborhood where there's not many people of my skin color. And what would that feel like? What would it feel like if I was a parent of beautiful black children in America and they came home from school and said, Mommy, I got called the N-word today. What does that mean? And how do you hold the tension of the theology in scriptures that says they are beautiful and created in the image of God with how people are treating them? And how do you begin to explain and yes, that is happening in Jesmond County. Let's think about internationals. We have so many beautiful, wonderful international students. Let's put on our empathy hat. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. We get up in the morning and we put on our shoes. It's 4 a.m. We leave, we go stand outside, we catch a bus. We ride the bus for 10 hours to the city where we can go and apply for a visa. We spend the night, we get up really early before dawn the next morning to go stand in a line. We have lots of very personal uh, papers that we've spent weeks and months accumulating. We have heard that it is slim to no chance that you're gonna get a visa to the United States to study. And so you know everything in your folder needs to be correct. Every I needs to be dotted. And even then, even after hours and comes to Asbury Theological Seminary to study, it is no small thing. And then you wake up to the TV that says, well, visa, visa changes are coming for international students. What kind of stress would you feel? What kind of stress might you feel when you're asked a question and you're not sure if you can criticize the government and keep a visa? In other words, are we looking to understand and to get in the shoes of people who are different from us? I want to submit to you at Asbury, we have a wonderful opportunity to learn, to rub elbows with people who are different from us, to have a different posture than the divisive world out there and to say this is an opportunity, an opportunity to learn about the world that God loves because there's a vision and I'm a going, and I'm going with people who are different from me. Now if I can just say a couple words pastorally to people of color, both internationals and Americans. I'm gonna use the word I, but I believe there's an Asbury Theological Seminary leadership we here. I want to say of you, I see you, you matter, to me. You matter to God. I see the struggle and it pains me. And I can't wait to get to the throne 
and worship beside you. And until that day, I want to learn how to serve you. And I want to exhort you. I can't comfort you, but I can point you to Revelation. Did you catch that? That Jesus will be our shepherd, that he will shelter us, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Give that, give that word to you for a hope for your future. Especially when you see Christians who claim to follow Christ and aren't acting like the Christ they claim to follow. And I want to exhort you, not because I deserve to ask you this, but I'm going to exhort you, don't harden your hearts. Jesus reconciled himself to us, right? We didn't deserve it. And we are called to take up the mantle of a ministry of reconciliation. We need to hear your voice, people of color. We need to learn from you. We need you to help us grow into our future where every tribe and tongue and nation and language are around the throne. And so I want to submit to you today, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us here, we at Asbury Theological Seminary, live differently because of this future vision. Let us learn how to love one another. In Jesus' name and to his glory. Almighty God, I pray that you would help us to do laundry. Lord, we acknowledge afresh that it is only by the grace of God that we will come before the throne. And Lord, where we have had blinders, would you convict us? Would you change us? Would you purify your bride so that we might be ready to worship around the throne with people all over your great world. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love. Amen.